welcome to another episode of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast, where you can get your bi-weekly fix of horror movie history. On this episode, I'm joined by a special guest for a special discussion of a topic episode. And this person's been no stranger to this podcast and podcasting in general, and I'm so glad to have him on. And this was his idea for this podcast, so uh, glad to have Dave Becker here to talk about this topic we're going to get into tonight. I'll let him announce it. But Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be back, sir. I, I don't I don't even remember the last time I was, I was on. I know I was I on Jean uh, Rolin. Jean Rolin, Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. Wow. That was a while it's been ago, a while. wasn't it? Yeah, it's almost been a year. Wow. <laughs> you were on twice in like a month and then. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but no, it's great to be back. And um, yeah, well, uh, the, the topic, uh, just to mention it real quick, is we're going to be looking at auteurs, the auteur theory, uh, as it pertains to, um, to horror and uh, those filmmakers that we feel uh, sort of fit into that, uh, that, that we feel are auteurs. Yeah, and I think that came up when I was going through Hitchcock and um, right. I think I had... I think you kind of led me down the right direction on because I wasn't as familiar with the auteur theory. Sure. Um, I don't d- dive into the, I feel like you get in deep to like the classic cinema and a lot of the, these directors that are considered auteurs. And I just never thought of it that way that you put it. And that's why, you know, I was happy when you came up with this topic. Cause I was like, Dave can come on here. He can lay down what an auteur is. And we can talk about some of the horror directors that we think fit that category. Perfect. Yep, and there and there are quite a few, and we're not we're not going to be able to cover them all tonight. No, you no, know, I think when I was making my list, there were so many. And even modern day, yeah, I think you can make a case for Ari Aster and Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're young into their careers. Yes, exactly. I mean, that we're not going to be talking about them tonight, but they could definitely fit into this this whole idea of what an auteur is. Yes, absolutely. I think so, and. Dave, now that we're talking about this, do you want to go ahead and just dive into what you've thought as like an auteur or what makes an auteur and what makes films fall under that theory? Absolutely. All right. So uh, so what is an auteur? Uh, well, to start at its most basic level, the word auteur is French for, obviously, author. And the auteur theory, as it pertains to film, began in the late 1940s as a movement. It was initiated by two French critics. Alexandre Astrick, uh, who himself became a filmmaker, and André Bazin. Now, Bazin was very influential on the future uh, French New Wave filmmakers, François Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, and, and all of those. Bazin co-founded Cahiers du Cinéma, which was a film magazine for which the French New Wave directors wrote before they made movies, when they were still critics. And he was also a noted film theorist. One of uh, Bazin's arguments was he argued that realism above all else was the most important function of the cinema. Now, the focal point of the auteur theory is the director. For his part, Estrick said that directors should wield their cameras like writers wield their pens. The idea being that it is the director who has final say on a film set as it pertains to performance, lighting, camera movements, etc., Also, some of the strongest directors manage to bring a personal style to their work. Those characteristics that even if you come late to a movie and start watching it at, say, like the halfway point, you have a strong idea who directed it just by the style of the film. 
Now, the origin of what would become the auteur theory stretched back further than Bazin and Estrich. Uh, in Germany, an early film theorist, Walter Julius Blom, explained that since filmmaking is an art geared towards popular culture, a film's immediate influence, the director, is viewed as the artist, whereas the earlier contributor, like the screenwriter, is viewed as an apprentice. Uh, now, Blom has a bit of a checkered history. I started looking into him. I sort of found him when I was researching this. I started looking into him, and he was an officer during World War II. Many of his writings glorified the National Socialist ideas. And he was with the SS right at the end, one of those helping to defend Berlin from the Soviets. His body was never found. It's presumed he died during the Berlin siege, but nobody knows for sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, anyway, back to the topic at hand. Even in America in the early 1940s, James Agee, who were, uh, he was a writer for Time magazine, once said, the best films are personal ones made by forceful directors. Also, the term auteur theory was not coined in France. It was a theory, of course, but it had no official title. It was Andrew Saris, who in his 1962 article, Notes on the Auteur Theory, coined that phrase. He was an American critic who wrote primarily for the Village Voice in New York. But years earlier, he was in Paris as a young man, and he befriended both Truffaut and Godard. And it was his friendship uh, with them, I'm sure, that helped define his sort of lifetime support of the auteur theory, that the director is the author of a film. Uh, he even wrote a book published in 1968 called The American Cinema, Directors and Directions, 1929 to 1968, in which he presented reviews and assessments of the sound era of film. And he organized those reviews by director. Each chapter was a different director. Uh, incidentally, Truffaut would do the same thing, organize his reviews and essays by director in his book, The Films of My Life. If you love movies, I strongly recommend picking that at one up. That's one of my favorite books, actually, uh, is Francois Truffaut's The Films of My Life. Now, back to France. It was in the early 50s that the writers of Cahiers de Cinema began criticizing the current trend in French cinema. Uh, in his 1954 article, A Certain Tendency in French Cinema, Francois Truffaut attacked what he called the cinema of quality, where directors stayed faithful to the script, in essence doing nothing more than adapting what he termed a literary novel. Truffaut called these directors uh, mature unseen, which means they're nothing more than a stager who adds the performance in pictures. They just took the script added the actors, added the images, and that was it. He would again approach the subject in his 1955 review of Jacques Becker's Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. Now, Becker was one of the few French directors at the time who impressed the new wave writers. They believed he, along with Jean Renard, Jacques Tati, and a few others, were the only real artists in cinema. In his review, Truffaut said, and I'm paraphrasing here, a failed film from a great director will always be better than a successful one by a mediocre director. Now, his exact quote was, the worst Hawks is more interesting than Houston's best. Howard Hawks was a hero of sorts of the French New Wave. They saw him as a true auteur, whereas John Houston was regarded as a director for hire. Now, I don't know if I agree with that. I think John Houston's natural bravado and his inherent masculinity made its way into some of his best films. Uh, certainly Treasure of the Sierra Madre and some of his later work as well. So I don't know that I'd necessarily buy that 
uh, John Huston was not an auteur. I think there were some of his films. He did branch off. He did other movies that didn't quite fit fit into that. I know he did Moulin Rouge in the early 50s. He did um, Moby Dick. Some films that sort of fell outside of that range. But John Huston made enough films that I think he sort of would fit into the auteur theory as well. Um, But the French critics didn't really see it that way. Oddly enough, Jerry Lewis impressed the hell out of the new wave critics. Uh, And it started with his 1960 uh, film, The Bellboy. Lewis did almost everything on that movie, writing, directing, lighting, editing, and art direction. The French critics praised Jerry Lewis for this movie. They heralded his mise-en-scene and his camera work, and he was likened to Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, and set shot at Ray. In particular, Jean-Luc Godard said Lewis was, and this is a direct quote, the only one in Hollywood doing something different. The only one who isn't <laughs> falling in with the established categories, the norms, the principle. The only one today who's making courageous films. Now, can you imagine that about Jerry Lewis? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not my first choice, but. No. Now, I'm getting a new respect for Jerry Lewis. I am. Mm-hmm. With his earlier films. I, there was one film he did. I think I don't know if it was in the 60s or in the, in the uh, early 70s. I think it was the 60s. He made a movie called The Family Jewels, which is actually a very funny movie. But I'm thinking more of like the Jerry Lewis of. You know, he just seems sort of goofy. Like the French yeah. seem to be the only one who really appreciated Jerry Lewis. <laughs> well, somebody had to. <laughs> somebody had to, right? I guess the French <laughs> were going to do it, right? Now, the auteur theory was also a strong influence on Hollywood in the late 60s and early 70s when new Hollywood broke onto the scene. And filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, Robert Altman, Sam Peckinpah, Peter Bogdanovich, and others took the industry by storm, speaking to a younger audience that had no desire to see the newest studio big-budget musical. That's all the studio was turning out. Mm-hmm. In, in the mid to late 60s were musicals. That's all they were focusing on. These young filmmakers came along and said, no, nah, we got other things to say, and the younger audience connected to that. And that was a direct influence. They were influenced by that sort of theory that it was the director, you know, by the films of the French New Wave. Uh, now, there, there have been a few opponents of the auteur theory over the years. Pauline Kael, who's a wonderful critic, she thought that uh, she called filmmaking a collaboration. She had a 1971 essay called Raising Cain, which examined Orson Welles' 1941 film Citizen Kane. And she asserted mm-hmm. that co-writer Herman J. Mankiewicz and cinematographer Greg Toland was responsible for that film's success as Orson Welles. Now, I will say, in his defense, Welles himself has praised Toland's contributions to that film to the point that in the end credits, he lists Toland's name on the same title card as his own. So he himself recognized Greg Toland's contributions to Citizen Kane. And then later on, Richard Corliss and David Kuypen argue that a film's success relies more on screenwriting. In 2006, to depict the screenwriter as the film's principal author, Kuypen coined the term Schreiber theory. And that basically is what it is. He says it is, is the screenwriter who is the true auteur of a film. But anyway, as far as the auteur theory goes, it means exactly that. The director is the author of the film. 
Forget the writer. It's the director's vision up there on the screen. This was certainly true with Hitchcock, Howard Hawks, Nicholas Ray, John Ford, Orson Welles, and a few of the directors we'll be discussing today who work primarily in the horror genre. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, that last point, Dave, about the um, collaborative effort. And my thoughts on that, and I want to get your two cents on this as well, mm-hmm. is when we talk about screenwriting in the script, and I think there's a lot to that, but I think at some point, no matter what's on that paper, a director can or does usually have a way of molding that story, that dialogue, that scenario, and really translating it in their own way, especially some of the shots you see that you can't put on a piece of paper. And, you know, some of the most beautiful shots we've seen, you can have two characters talking to each other and it can just be static in a room Mm -hmm. and they're saying the same dialogue. Or you can have those two, you know, with a train in the background, and the sun setting or something like that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that piece with the screenwriter versus the director? I, I think what it is, is the screenwriter lays it out. They, they build the script. Sometimes some screenwriters will even put close up, you know, or wide shot mm-hmm. or whatever in the script. But it is up to the director to define that, to, to sort of lay that out. And the director may ultimately choose to, uh, you know, uh, excise some dialogue to give it a different feel. You know, and I think that's one of the things like I'm a big I'm a proponent of the author theory, just laying it out there. I Mm -hmm. think the author theory is that's what it is. I think the director is the author of the film. You know, the the screenwriter sort of puts it down on paper and he says, "Okay, here's the guide. But then a director will come in and say, "Okay, yeah, this is good. This is good. I'm not so big a fan of this. Let's change this around. He'll be the one. It's his vision, I think, who is ultimately up there on the screen. Yeah. And then even if you go back to and there's a couple of examples here we talk about. And this all came up because of Alfred Hitchcock. A lot of times Hitchcock would have, you know, he would sit down and kind of describe his vision to the writer. And they would have these long sessions and go back and forth. And it was up to the writer to put his vision into a usable script because he wasn't the strongest yes. at writing and dialogue and that. He, but then well, he, he wasn't would, a script writer. Hitchcock was not a writer at all. No, he wrote titles for silent films, but that's a lot different than. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing he's sitting down and he's getting his vision. And I think I see that now after you'd say that, because I thought, well, Hitchcock never wrote anything, but yeah, but he was there in the meetings with the writers. He was giving his vision to, you know, I want this to eventually happen. Let's get there. Yes. And he used um, uh, storyboards. He storyboarded his film from start to finish. Yep. So that by the time he was shooting it, it just sort of was, it was routine because he already had the entire movie played out in his head. And he just was sort of, sort of doing, you know, just sort of going through the motions at that point. Yes, absolutely. And um, sorry, another example here, Dave, I want to talk about that team that was together with Val Luton in the early days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it was him and Jacques Turner and the whole Mark Robeson and all of them working on the films. And do you think in those days, because those days, really, the producers are who had the power, right? Yeah. Yes. Do you think it was possible to have an auteur under that kind of system in the U.S. at that time? I, I think because of the director, Jacques, uh, that 
Val Luton worked with, mm-hmm. Jacques Turner and Robert Wise. Yep. I think they had a say. But you ha- you make a great point. I think in those in that time, Val Luton was the one who was sort of driving things. Just like earlier than that, David O. Selznick was yep, driving. I was say Selznick. Yep. Selznick was driving things with um, with going with the wind and even Hitchcock later on. Even as with far Hitchcock, as like cutting yes. the film after the fact. I'm telling you, one of the one of the funniest things I I read was was about the um there was an article. Oh God, I, I, a friend of mine at work had given it to me, and I can't remember where it was at this point. But it was about David O. Selznick and uh, Hitchcock going back and forth with Rebecca. Oh yeah, that was a mess. And and what they were doing, and Selznick had these ideas, and Hitchcock. I don't know who he was talking to at one point. It might have been it might have been Truffaut when he was doing those interviews with Truffaut, but I can't say for sure where he was talking about how Selznick at one point thought at the end of the movie, there should be like a puff of smoke out of the chimney in the form of an R. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and Hitchcock was talking, whoever he was talking to was, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember that um, from the episode I did. And the funny thing about that, Dave was um, whenever Selznick would be scheduled to come on the set, they would act like the equipment was broken. Right. And they wouldn't yes. film anything until he <laughs> left. <laughs> See, Hitchcock was not someone who was going to, he was not going to succumb to that sort of pressure. And he had that, you know, he had that, well, obviously with Rebecca, um, I'm pretty sure, you know, Selznick was with the parodying case. That might be for me, the most boring Hitchcock movie of all time. It is a it is a snooze fest, the parodying case. And oh god, I no, I I know I'm thinking, you know what I'm thinking? Um never mind. That was back in his uh, in his uh in his uh British days, the one he made with Charles Lawton. Oh, Jamaica Inn? Jamaica Inn, which isn't not a terrible movie. It's all right, it's, yeah. It's all right. It's not terrible. It's Lawton's movie, I think. It, yes, it's more it's more a Charles Lawton movie than it is a Hitchcock movie, but it's five times the movie that the parroting case is, you know, the parroting case is David O. Selznick and Hitchcock, I think just sort of went and said, okay, I'm just going to shoot what he wants me to shoot here. Well, he did jobs, right? He did paychecks too. Hitchcock yeah. did every now and then. Every now and again, he would. Yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, he made for, um, who's that actress? She ended up dying, uh, uh during World War II. Christ, what's her name? I'm blanking now. Yeah, me too. I can't remember her name. Uh, but he was he was a friend of hers. And she asked him uh, to direct it. Carol Lombard. Carol Lombard, yes. Yes, they he were did friends. That yep. as a, he did that as a favor to her. That's yes. not a Hitchcock film. That is Hitchcock as like a director for hire. But when you look at a Hitchcock film, when you look at what makes him an auteur... And there's a lot of them out there. I mean, you've got Rear Window, Vertigo, um, even before that. God, what, like the, the man one, who knew too much. And the man who knew. I I liked the man who knew too much. The remake, like the second one in the fifties with James Stewart. Yeah, I just have a special connection to that one from the thirties with Peter. Lorre. Is it Peter Laurie? Yeah, Peter Laurie's in that one. I have a special connection to that one because it's one of the first. It's actually one of the first Hitchcock movies I saw. I got it on, on it was, it's a public domain film. I picked it up on video. That and Sabotage. Mm-hmm. I got both I'm, of those films. Um, I'm trying to remember, is the, same the man 
uh, do you remember is the man who knew too much? Cause like I watched them all together this mm-hmm. earlier this summer. Is that the one where they're in a church of the sun or something and they're throwing chairs at each other yes. and fight? That's the one at the end. Yes. They're throwing chairs <laughs> at each other. Yes. <laughs> oh, that was great. I love that. That's Hitchcock's humor coming out, right? It is. Yes. And it also shows another thing with all of Hitchcock's films. He does not have a respect for, for uh, police. No, not at all. he's scared of police. He's scared of police because of that incident from his childhood where I don't know if it was his father, whatever. Yes, they, it was. Like he, yep. His father had the police lock him in jail for a while. Like <laughs> yeah. Teach him a lesson as a child. And it traumatized him. So throughout his career, police are never depicted as strong characters in a Hitchcock film. No, nope. And really, to be honest, I mean, we're talking horror here. Are, they're usually not depicted as strong characters across the genre. <laughs> no, no, not at all. What was that? Was it Halloween five where we had those two goofy cops plus last house on the left? Oh yeah. That right the, after the one of the, right after one of the most shocking scenes in the film, uh, we, we, we have like this, we have a Laurel and Hardy cop team come in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So I guess this, this brings me up to a point, Dave, and I want to talk to this. I think we've talked a little bit about it with Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. But do you think directors that skip around all different genres and someone like um, Guillermo del Toro, who does his own films, and there's a huge difference between the studio films he does and his you know, Spanish language films that he puts out. Do you think there's room for that and room for, you know, bouncing genres, going to gigs that aren't necessarily like on the level of your other work? You compare Mimic to Kronos or you compare you know, uh, blade two to something like the shape of water. Mimic is tough because with mimic, uh, del Toro was working with the Weinsteins and they were insistent on controlling that movie. Uh, del Toro has said making mimic was one of the most miserable experiences of his life. And it's not even Harvey Weinstein. He was the brother, the brother would go down to the set all the time and say, what are you doing? Make it scarier. Make it this, make it that, you know, like he, mm-hmm. like he was, and Del Toro's like, he just said it was one of the most miserable experiences of his life. Yeah, I get that. And the results weren't that bad, honestly. I don't know. I, I kind of, I, I like good. Mimic. I think yeah. Mimic is actually a pretty strong film. And I think enough of Del Toro comes through to make it such. And I, you know, and then maybe you got to give the wine scene some credit for that. But I don't want to. I just want to give Del Toro credit for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. Because you were talking about that a little bit with Hitchcock. You know, he did director for hire stuff. Um, yep. You know, he did his propaganda films and he did his uh, quickies, quota quickies, as they called them in the UK. Right. And things like that. But he's still, when he's bringing it, you can tell who's making the film. You, you can tell. I think the first one that Hitchcock thought was like a true one of his movies was The Lodger. Yes. Yep. You know, uh, what was that? Uh, the London Fog. Yep. 27. Yeah. That was the first one. He has that awesome shot, like where he had a glass floor and he's shooting up and you see that lodger walking back and forth, just pacing on the floor. And it's, it's amazing. And you, you would see shots like that in later Hitchcock films, even in his early British films. You know, like we're talking the man who knew too much and sabotage the lady vanishes, you know, which is another one, which is really strong. You see that in his early films. 
And that's what caught the attention of Hollywood. And that's what one of the things that Selznick brought him out for, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. but, but Selznick was just sort of a control freak. And <laughs> yeah. He didn't know what he was getting into. He wanted yeah, he, people that he it, could. It was, it was never going to be a good collaboration between no. Hitchcock and, and, and Selznick. They made some good movies. I mean, I really like Rebecca. I think Rebecca's, oh, Rebecca's one of my favorite film. Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah. I love Rebecca. It's a good movie, but you, there was that tension there. You know, where it's the the producer sort of fighting the director and Hitchcock just being a strong director standing up to saying, no, we're not going to do that. I'm I'm glad they didn't do that puff of smoke where it formed oh an arc God. out of the chimney. I, I want to make a goddamn well, sense. <laughs> you know, he got away with that because Selznick was busy putting out fires over on Gone with the Wind. So, oh, wow. nice. which was a bigger deal than yes, Rebecca. Right. That was a much bigger <laughs> film. Yeah. But you want to you want to see a David O. Selznick film. Watch Duel in the Sun. Okay. And it is a hot mess. There are things about it I like, but there's a lot more to it that is a hot mess. And it, that was, that is David O. Selznick as the auteur. Duel in the Sun. I remember Martin Scorsese is a fan of it because he saw it as a child. He saw it when he was really young and it sort of made an impression on him. And he took the time to show it to Michael Powell. And a friend of his, you know, Michael Powell, the great British director, and he's watching it. And at the end, there's like a shootout. And Michael Powell leaned to his friend and said, it's a shame they didn't shoot the screenwriter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. But that's like, that's what happened when when, when a producer like David O. Selznick gets his way. You want to see, watch Rebecca. That's you have like the clash between a director and a strong director and a strong producer. You want to see a producer getting his way. Watch Duel in the Sun. That is a David O. Selznick movie. Well, and there's a lot of, here's the thing. Yes, you will, every once in a while, you will get someone like Val Luton, who is a true creative force yes, as a producer. Absolutely. Most of the time, those are money people. Right. Even when you talk about Jason Blum, who's been responsible for a lot of great stuff, he is still first and foremost interested about what kind of profit they're going to turn on sure. their films. Sure. So, and that and that's their job. Yes. That's their job. Yeah. There's a place for everyone on a film crew and every part of a film. It's just yep. sometimes when they try to take over other areas, it doesn't turn out as well. Right. One more question, Dave, and then we can get into our our picks for this episode. So something I've been thinking about mulling over, and we see auteurs do this a lot, especially now. What are your thoughts on do reusing cast members and reusing the same type of like score and music um, a la, you know, Goblin uh, with mm-hmm. Argento films or cast members like, um, you know, in Tarantino films when he's reusing the same cast over and over. Do you think that has anything to play and adds to the auteur status? Or you think that's something completely separate, doesn't have anything to do with it? No, I think it has a lot to do with it. What, because uh, because that's been happening through time. I mean, um, uh, you know, how many movies did Joseph von Sternberg make with Marlena Dietrich? Clarence Brown directed uh, many movies that starred Greta Garbo. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it does mean something. I think it I think it does. I think that that is like because that's the director picking the cast he's comfortable with. He or she is comfortable with and bringing them back and saying, "Okay, I have a role for you in this film. I have a role for you in that film." 
and that's happened through time. I mean, how many movies was you know with Stuart Gordon? Let's say let's just pick mm. Stuart Gordon, <laughs> where he used Jeffrey Combs. Yep. You know, to a lesser extent, Crampton, right? Well, Barbara Crampton, yeah, she appeared in quite a few as well. It it happens. It happens through t- it through all of them. You know, they they go back to actors actresses that they are comfortable with that actually might even be more of an auteur thing you know it, it might mm-hmm. even prove that they they have control over the casting as well and you, you're right with tarantino you know samuel l jackson appearing in a lot of his movies kurt russell has appeared in the last tim roth tim roth yeah they've they, they appear multiple times throughout um, Martin Scorsese, starting with Robert De Niro and now oh, yeah, recently yeah. with Leonardo DiCaprio, mm-hmm. you know, now again, Martin Scorsese is another guy. I he did a, um, uh, a, a special for BFI. It was called, um, a journey through American cinema with Martin Scorsese. I think it was called that. It might've been called something. I don't remember the exact title of it, but it was like a four hour documentary. And Martin Scorsese was talking about being a filmmaker he's like how what does it take to be a success as a filmmaker do you make one for you and one for them and scorsese has done that on occasion the color of money he did that for the studio you know that was a paul newman film that was not a martin scorsese film but it was a good movie i liked the color of money as a follow-up to the hustler i thought it was pretty strong but it was not you got glimpses of Scorsese in there, but it was not a Martin Scorsese film. Now Scorsese has reached the pinnacle where he's just like, every movie is going to be a Martin Scorsese movie. Yeah, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I want. I'm, I'm at that level now. And Yeah, Spielberg's done some some one-for-them movies, too, through his career, right? Uh, he has. Yeah, he has. Although, I don't know. I You know, he... He's something else, you know, Spielberg is something else because (laughs) he tapped into that thing. He tapped into that sort of, it's funny because when it was, when Spielberg put Jaws out, Mm -hmm. Roger Corman, who had made a career out of making these low budget films because Hollywood just wasn't turning out what people wanted to see. When Jaws came out, Roger Corman's reaction was like, "Uh uh-oh, someone figured it out. (laughs) Yeah. That's Spielberg. Corman. Yeah, I can hear that word, Scare Corman. Yeah, Spielberg, I'm thinking Spielberg's been pretty consistent throughout his career. Now, maybe recently you could say he's had some hits and misses, but. He he has, but but even some of his but even some of his films that aren't really like like haven't haven't reached the pinnacle. You know, when you think of Spielberg, you think Jaws, you think Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you think E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, a lot of those early films, but Munich, which came out in 2005, I thought was a damn good movie. I liked War Horse. It came out not too long ago, and I thought he did a damn good job with Lincoln. So there are times with Spielberg where he might not be making a Spielberg, what you would think would be a quote unquote Spielberg movie. But it still has that mark. It has that Spielberg mark on it. No, that that makes total sense. But Dave, I think you, yeah, I think you cleared that up for me. And honestly, with the going back to like the actor and cast thing, 
it's almost even more impressive when they use the same people over and over and get different performances out of them, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that, ha- that happened quite a bit. Like I said, uh, Joseph von Sternberg with Marlena Dietrich. Um, there were times when she was the vamp. There were times when she was the victim. And you see that sort of time and again. And you look at, even, even with Tarantino, uh, let's look at Uma Thurman. You know, uh, she appeared, she had a very sort of specific type of role in Pulp Fiction. It was a very different role when you got to the Kill Bill films. Oh, absolutely. Uh, all right, Dave, are you ready to jump into our, and we each picked, I don't know if we've said it already, but we each picked two horror directors and we're going to go over them and why we think they're auteurs. Yep. Do you want to go ahead and start with your first one that you picked? Absolutely. Let's do it. Um, the first one I picked is George A. Romero. Now, Romero is called, quite appropriately, uh, the father. No, let me correct that. He is the godfather <laughs> of the modern zombie film. His Living Dead series, The Amazing Night, The Near Perfect Dawn, The Gortastic and Oh-So-Incredible Day, The Underrated Land, The Flawed Diary, and I must admit I have yet to see Survival, but nothing oh. I've heard makes me want to <laughs> rush out. It's not great. I saw okay, it when it yeah. came out. It's, okay. Yeah. Uh, these epitomized the Romero zombie, which was always about more than zombies. One of the things, perhaps the key thing, that makes Romero an auteur, especially in, in his Living Dead films, is his penchant for including often veiled yet never obscured social commentary. Now, the following is from uh, the Den of Geek website during their coverage of 1968's Night of the Living Dead. Now, this is getting into direct quotes here. Romero's film was, however, more than just a splatter movie. Like a nightmare, it seemed to take shreds of contemporary reality, civil rights protests, the increasingly ugly Vietnam War, and turned them into something new. Loosely inspired by Richard Matheson's novel, I Am Legend, plus perhaps a smattering of the birds, Night of the Living Dead gave pop culture its first modern zombie movie, and also a horror with a broad streak of social satire. Through its gray documentary-style images, Night of the Living Dead captured the turbulent air of the late 1960s. Although Romero downplayed his casting of a black lead, Dwayne Jones, who plays apocalypse survivor Ben, its impact on the narrative is difficult to miss. At a time when African-Americans were only just beginning to receive equal rights, Jones's leading turn as a resourceful, level-headed protagonist immediately marked the film out as something different. Then there was its conclusion. Ben's fate at the hands of a gang of tr- trigger-happy rednecks still packs a brutal punch almost 40 years later. Critics have frequently drawn the line between None of the Living Dead's ending and the assassination of Malcolm X. By pure tragic coincidence, the very night Romero was driving his cans of film from Pittsburgh to New York, civil rights activist Martin Luther King was shot and killed in Memphis, Tennessee. Again, Romero had his finger resting on the pulse of a tumultuous chapter in American history. So what did IMDb have for Romero's trademarks? By the way, the IMDb... Uh, trademark posts, which are usually found under a filmmaker's biography, are more often than not the very things that make that particular director an auteur. So here we go. Here's what they had under George Romero. One, often features radio or television news broadcasts playing in the background. Two, 
Films often contain extreme carnage with makeup effects by Tom Savini. Three, strong minority and female characters. And four, zombie films with an underlying social commentary. Now, there was social commentary in all of Romero's dead films. Uh, the following is from scriptlab.com, and this covers several of his moves, uh, several of his living dead films. Dawn of the Dead. The conscious link to consumerism is made in Dawn of the Dead, where Romero shows mole-bound zombie creatures flocking in droves without a reason for doing so. You know, these zombies are just going back there because it's habit for them. Uh, and that's that was his critique on consumerism. Day of the Dead. There's something all the more pensive about Day of the Dead's insistence on isolation. When you think about it, you know that your own humanity depends in part on the people you surround yourself with. It's part of what keeps us sane, quote unquote sane, for lack of a better term. That very idea is explored at length through Day of the Dead, where George Romero provided scathing insight into the nature of humanity as a whole. The decisions made, rising temperatures, and the pressures that mount underground with the characters there make for a compelling question, what makes a society? Now we go to Land of the Dead. The secret of humanity is our ability to adapt. We evolve in ways that surpass the physical, thanks to reasoning and tools. That's also become our downfall in Land of the Dead, Romero's depiction of a normalized future in the wake of undead disaster. The resulting society bears scars of the harsh survivalist world they've endured, scars like cruelty and an oppressive class system. Now, that was his Living Dead films, but that social commentary extended beyond his Living Dead movies. Let's look at 1973's The Crazies, a movie that I enjoy, though I got to be honest, I may enjoy the remake a little more than the original. But the following comes from the Cinema uh, Cinematech website. The weight of the violence presented in The Crazies is almost difficult to grasp. The film picked up on its political moment, following a grossly abusive and overreaching military presence in a small town. In a 1977 interview, Romero said, At the time I made it, we were still in Vietnam, and it was a very heartfelt problem, a part of the national consciousness, that, and I don't think anybody was ready to see that situation. Even though it's not a Vietnam film, it's an anti-military film. One of the most unsettling scenes in The Crazies features a priest, deeply angered by the military's evacuation of his church, who lights himself on fire. It is an immediately recognizable visual reference to uh, the Thich Quang Duc's uh, self-immolation, which Romero acknowledges in the film's uh, commentary. Women's Wear Daily's very positive review also brings up the film's relationship with the Kent State shootings. This parallel becomes especially poignant during the casual military gun violence that erupts during a riot at the high school towards the, uh, towards the end of the film. The key to the film's satire lies in military violence, a theme that would be picked up in the great Day of the Dead, but even removed from a political context. The most unsettling element of the film is the prop that comes with the military. He's talking now about the crazies again. Each figure is dressed in a white suit and a gas mask, and many scenes feature these anonymous squadrons wreaking havoc across the Pennsylvania countryside. As Romero discusses in a 2014 interview with Sight and Sound, uh, uh, the different uh, mass soldiers have their own personalities, much like the dynamically dressed every person zombies of Dawn of the Dead. Romero claims, and this is a quote, I'm just always looking for things, you know, look, 
uh, like this guy is going to walk through there. He might think, oh, look at those fishing rods. Why don't I just grab them? It's this touch which makes it difficult to truly be able to gauge the film's military antagonists, who are at once both completely anonymous and unique personalities. It's another example of a film pushing unanticipated layers on what a viewer might expect in a way that bewilders and disturbs. Dave, so you're kind of uh, putting me to shame there with everything you put together. You went out and got a lot of research on Romero and articles and things putting together. And I'll tell you the crazies. And I'm with you on that one. I do kind of like the remake better than the original. Yeah, yeah. But it's still I a good like film. I like the original. I still like the original. Yeah. I just think the remake... It's one of the few times a remake sort of improves a little bit on the original. And I I mean, I think Romero is easily an auteur when you think about it because of two things. One, you have the obvious with the, you know, undead and the zombies throughout his right. films. And he kind of, I mean, really the first film that used actual that type of undead zombies and not just the voodoo type zombies. You can you talked about uh, Matheson's I Am Legend. Yeah. But really, in the book, aren't those more vampires? They're than they vampires. Are? Absolutely. Yeah. Those are vampires. They are not zombies. Yeah. A lot of people look at those movies, like The Last Man on Earth, I, um, The Omega Man, and I Am Legend as zombies. No. Matheson, those were vampires. There's... Yeah. The, he, he doesn't even... He doesn't even draw like... He doesn't even... It, it's, it's not even like... It, it, there's no question about it. Those are vampires in those. They are not zombies. Yeah. But you can see how it, it did influence uh, Romero to create his to his to create his film. And he looked at it as an influence. And the birds, I think, is an interesting in that in that article that I quoted where they talked about the birds. That was what I never thought of. Yeah. Yes, but it's true because if you think about it, the thing about the birds is those mass, the mass of birds. That mm-hmm. attacked. That's what you get in Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. You get just this growing mass of of living dead that come and just keep flocking there and flocking there. And you're like, oh my God, that was what when I watched that movie for the first time, that's what got me. As I was watching it, I'm like, this isn't so bad. There's what a dozen zombies <laughs> out there. Yeah. It's not so bad. They push a chair out and they light it on fire and they scare a few of them away. And it, wow, these aren't anything. It's like, looks out the window. Oh, wow. Now there's a few more out there and looks like, wow, there's like 50 or hundred out there now. It's like a, this is <laughs> That's a lot coming yeah. from. That's what the movie does. It works on you that way. It works on you by making the threat build and build and build, you know? So when you start off from a point of being like, oh, I think we'll be okay here too. Oh my God, we're screwed beyond belief. Yep. And also, so you've got the zombies we talked about, um, but yeah. then like what you were saying too is the political and the everything else that are the very timely and the themes and stuff he's going into. Yes. And it's not anything where he's beating people over the head with it. It's something no, where he's not, he's giving fans of horror, a horror film, but he is putting the, the, the social realities of that time period into those movies. And they're stretching a long period, you know, 1968, 1978, 1985, and then the early 2000s with Land of the Dead, which I think are the only really four worth talking about. For being yes. Honest. Yeah. By the time it got to Diary of the Dead, he was out of touch. 
you know, yeah. he was no longer a diary of the dead show that George Romero, he didn't quite understand how society worked by the time diary of the dead <laughs> came about because what was it? Somebody posted a video and they go, Oh, look, we've already got 10,000 views. Well, how, that doesn't happen. Come on. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. You no, know so, I... so he was out of touch by that point and it's a shame he didn't stop with land of the dead, land of the dead was sort of, I remember seeing that in the theaters and I remember reading like critical um, assessments of it and it was mixed at the time. But I think if you look at it now, Land of the Dead, it's not a trilogy, it's a quadrilogy. I think Land of the Dead fits very nicely into his world, uh, you know, of the living dead. When they're all in different decades, like you said, they're spread out. They're not on top of each other. It's not, right. I'm going to do it's these four different films. decades. You got four different decades yeah. and four different socio-political uh, comments going on in all four in all four of those films yeah and i love all four of them i land of the dead is probably my least favorite but i think it's still a strong film it's got a good I, cast well, i mean yes it's my least favorite as well of those it's four it's got some good thing it's got some good things to say too it does it has some good things to say it's my least favorite of the four but it's like 10 times better than diary of the dead <laughs> yeah and the other three i mean to be fair for me are close all close to tens so yeah me too me too i agree with you they're they're among my favorite they're, they're all three of them are in my 200 favorite films of all time yeah they're they're all incredible films so i think romero's a slam dunk for an auteur and how his movies i mean even he did some weirder stuff like we talked the crazies which is close to zombies right but then you've got like Martin and and movies like you that. Know what? that are... Martin is an interesting film. It's so it's interesting. Vampire. It's a vampire film where you can see that this could be a real vampire. Yeah. You could see this kid, Martin, being like an actual vampire. You know, vampires are like part of mythology or whatever, you know, with Dracula and then Bram Stoker's Dracula and Nosferatu and whatnot. Uh, you don't look at them as like real creatures. George Romero gives us with Martin what might be the first vampire that we can say, hey, this SOB could be out there <laughs> doing what he's doing. Oh yeah, Martin. Yeah, Martin's a weird, weird guy. It's a, but... <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but no, that's a that's a very interesting film. I don't know where it stacks up with the rest of the Romero films for me, but I think it's if nothing else, it's showing that he's going to do something kind of new and inventive while still keeping his grounded stance on this yep. stuff. Like you, and he I did mean, other things as well, like Creep Show, which might not fit into what we're discussing here a creep show that was like him and Stephen King got together and they did creep show. Uh, I love creep show uh, for me. Creep show is the quintessential anthology film. I do. I think I love creep show. You asked me to rate like anthology films and number one is always going to be creep show. Numbers two through five might fluctuate, mm -hmm. but creep show is always going to be number one. Yeah, definitely. And he did a uh, Two Evil Eyes as well, which is similar in right. the fact that it was a an adaptation of a yes. Poe story. And and so. was it is it is it just me or do I actually prefer Romero's first film to Argento's second film? 
Well, the thing with Argento's film is it's like three different Poe stories mixed into one and it's trying to do some weird stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, it's been a little while since I've seen that, but I think I did like Romero's better than Argento's. Uh, I I did. And, you know, and I didn't dislike I didn't hate Argento's film. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I thought it was, you know, I thought it had some moments to it. But for me, that first segment with Romero was the stronger of two evil eyes. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a great choice, Dave. Is there anything else you want to talk about on Romero or discuss no, before we No, not at all. I on? think no, I think I've covered it as well. Let's put this way. I'm out of I'm out of notes. So <laughs> <laughs> Well, I really liked what how you pulled in sources and other things. I'm more of uh on my end I'm gonna warn you, I'm gonna try to just pull things out of what I've pulled out of their movies and try to Well, with um, my next one, that's what I'm gonna do as well. Okay, cool. So, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for your next one too okay. to hear what you talk about. But so my first pick is one that's a little Lesser known, I believe. And Dave, I don't know how familiar you are with the works of Alex de la Iglesia. I'm not as familiar. Okay. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. So he's a Spanish director and I first caught wind of de la Iglesia from his movie, The Day of the Beast from the mid nineties. Nice. And from there, I was kind of just drawn into his other films and these worlds he creates. So with De La Iglesia, he always brings, and you can kind of tell in his early films, there's always going to be that humor and that comedy there. There's also always going to be over-the-topness to the characters. And there's going to be almost like otherworldly situations that he, in a way, grounds in some way to make you think that they could actually happen. Similarly to like what we were talking about almost with Romero. And yes, these are a little more campy and over the top than Romero's stuff. And it's not as much of a think piece when you're watching one of his films. But he does one thing that we talked about earlier a lot, and that is use the same actors over and over. And that's maybe easier to do in, you know, a director who specifically works in Spain and with Spanish actors. There's not as big of a market, but he does tend to like to use a lot of the same actors over and over again. But now I have not seen his debut film, which was Mutant Action, which I have heard is much more of a comedy film and not as much horror anyway. But when he does Day of the Beast, which is about basically two guys trying to stop the birth of the Antichrist. And, you know, there's gallows humor for days in this movie. It's all over the place. It's the dark black humor mixed with some pretty intense and scary situations, especially a scene that we see later on in the film where we see kind of the beast, the titular beast show up. And there's always that tension in there. Now, he switches gears a little bit with Perdita Durango, and I don't know if you've seen, stop me if you've seen any of these, Dave, but Perdita Durango is a crazy film, and it's much more, it's got that horror in there, and it's got action and crime, but it's got some very uncomfortable sexualization type scenes that go on in this movie. Basically, you have Rosie Perez and Javier Bardem, who are playing these crazy criminals who kidnap this couple, and... Where it goes from there is just over the top and insane. Now, this isn't one of my favorites of his. Wow. What, but what, year was the, what year did that come that out? That was 97. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, so he was, I mean, if you ever get a chance, that's one that you'll probably enjoy, Dave. That's completely different than a lot of the other films in his filmography, but I think it yep. still has those touch marks. Nice. Then we move on, and as far as what I'm familiar with, he did um, a made-for-TV movie called The Baby's Room, which is pretty good, but you know how it is with TV movies and when you're getting edited for TV, and this one was in Spain that it came out. Um, so it has some of those trademarks, but it's not quite there. Right. But then we yeah. get into the 2010s, Dave, and his films that he had put out there were The Last Circus, Witching and Bitching, and The Bar. And those three films to me are not going to be for everyone. I think you watch an Alex de la Iglesia film, and I think that's another thing is you watch one of his films, you know pretty much what you're in for going forward. And if you're going to like them or not, I happen to like them and I want to dig deep into what they are. But in The Last Circus, you get a clown who is in, you know, a traveling circus. And he ends up going a little bit insane and kind of marking up his face <laughs> and making the clown attire permanent on him and goes on a rampage. Hmm. And you go to witching and bitching where in the beginning you have a heist that involves a man who is painted gold and is carrying a crucifix and dressed like Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's a lot of that stuff too is uh, so little pokes and nods at the Catholic religion, which I'm, you know, is very predominant in Western Europe, but and they get, you know, they come up on this coven of witches and, you know, hilarity ensues from that point on. Um, the bar is one where there's a sniper outside of this cafe. And, you know, there's these regulars, there's new people that are in this bar. There's the workers and the staff. And they're basically figuring out how to get out of this situation. The police aren't coming. They're stuck in this bar and they've got to figure out what to do. And that one goes a lot crazier than you think it would from the scenario. And I think that's the thing with De La Iglesia is he's always putting that over the topness while also giving you characters who are grounded in reality to an extent and kind of foiling those with characters who are larger than life and things that happen to them that are a little abnormal. So I think he does a great job of mixing that and mixing in the comedy and it's hard to explain what there is about these films, but when you watch them and you watch a couple of them, you pretty much get it. Nice. I got to be honest, I'm not very familiar with him. So uh, the, you've you given me a number of films to watch. Yeah, I yeah, Dave, I would start with Day of the Beast if you haven't seen it. I, um, I have it on DVD, so I'm I, that will be the first one. Okay, cool. Yeah, Severin put out a very nice... Um, I was waiting forever because that DVD has been out of print for a while. Mm. And I was waiting forever, and Severin finally put out some nice releases of that and Perdita Durango. I think they might still both be on Shudder as well. Nice. But those are two... I think you would like both of those. Um, I'm not as big as fan as Perdita Durango, but I do love Day of the Beast and Witching and Bitching, I think, are two really good films that I think you'll and like. Witching and Bitching is a very recent one. Yeah, that was like 2013 or something. Okay. Okay. I don't know when it came to the US, but I think that was its Spanish release. Nice. So yeah, I wanted to with my two picks, I wanted to kind of take a lesser known director who I really love and state my case for that and then go with a more well known director later on. But yep. Very so that good. was my first pick. All right. Dave, do you want to move into your number two? All right. My number two. 
And this is another director who I think, God, let me take a look because uh, George Romero passed away in 2017. And I think my uh, second director passed away that very same year. And I want to see when he did. I think you're right because we lost a lot of people that year in the horror realm, if I remember right. uh, George Romero. Let me just look it up because George Romero died on July 16th, 2017. And your second one was August 26th, 2017. My second one is August 26th of 2017. So a few months, like less than than two months after George Romero's death. And it is someone who you might not think of as being an author when you first hear his name, but Toby Hooper. Yes. This is a great right. choice, Dave. Can't wait to hear it. And there are now I've uh, I've kind of praised, you know, when I was talking about George Romero, the IMDb trademarks section of a filmmaker's biography. But when it comes to my next director, who, you know, as we said, is Toby Hooper, the IMDb trademarks are something of a letdown. There was only one trademark listed for Toby Hooper, and it reads often directed horror movies. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> it's about as bland as you could be right yeah exactly uh so let's see if we can't break this uh down ourselves looking some of hope uh toby hooper's films and I, there are six that i've chosen uh we have the texas chainsaw massacre of course eaten alive salem's lot the fun house poltergeist and life force now he made other movies but I chose these six as the ones to focus on because I think they make the strongest case for Toby Hooper as an auteur. So we'll start with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Of course, my favorite horror film of all time, my second favorite film of all time. What are we seeing here? We're seeing, you know, it's a very, it's a very low budget film. It's shot on location. And it gives you young characters who fall victim to this family, the Sawyer family. And there are scenes in that movie, especially later on in that last act that are flat out insane, just crazy. The dinner sequence after Sally has been, you know, brought in by, by the chef and the the hitchhiker and, and Leatherface, and they're sitting there. It's insanity. All right. It is craziness. You're sitting there going, what the hell am I watching? What's going on here? Now, his next film, Eaten Alive, about um, this guy who runs something like a hotel where he has this killer crocodile or alligator out in in this lake. Eaten Alive feels as if it could be the next town over from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) These two movies feel as if they exist in the same world. Now, that's very interesting because Texas Chainsaw Massacre was shot mostly on location. Eaten Alive was shot mostly in a studio. These are studio sets in Eaten Alive. Yet, the feel of that movie makes it feel as if it's the next town over from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because it's set in Texas it is Robert E. England playing Buck. And it's funny because he he says a line in, in this movie that I know Quentin Tarantino lifted for Kill Bill Volume 1 with his character <laughs> of Buck. 
he does a good job of that stuff, right? He does. He, he from does. Yeah, absolutely. And I know he got that from Eaten Alive. <laughs> All right. So that's that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Eaten Alive. They exist, I think, in the same uh, universe, even though one was shot in location, one was shot in studio. They have a common vibe. They have a common feel. And you have Neville Brand giving like an insane performance in Eaten Alive. You know, I don't think there's a moment in that movie where he seems sane. And Dave, I got to. I got to be honest with you. So I want to talk about your first two before we get on here, if that's okay with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I don't, I haven't seen Eaten Alive yet. It's been on my list for a long time, wow. but I need to get to that one. Arrow has a really good release of it out there. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's definitely been on my list to get to. Okay. The thing with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I, I've told this story on here before how I, you know, came to horror late, like when I, I was in my, you know, later teens and early twenties. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of those first ones I watched when I was digging deeper. And I got to tell you, that movie disturbed me so much, especially oh, the yeah. dinner scene. Oh, my God. Yes. That I respected it. But I almost didn't want to touch it again because it terrified me. <laughs> I can understand that. I can understand that. Yes, that's the way the movie is, because this one of those movies where you just can't predict it. You look at that opening sequence and then you mm -hmm. look at where the movie goes there's just no way of knowing what's going to happen in that movie. And that's one of the reasons it's my all time favorite horror film, you know, yeah. where, and another, another thing I've said this on other podcasts before, there's no learning in that film. You no. know, you no. look at Halloween, there's a point where Jamie Lee Curtis knows Michael Myers is coming and she runs from him. In Texas Chainsaw Massacre, nobody knows about Leatherface until it's too late. Yep. None of the main characters know this guy is coming until it's too late. Not a single damn one. Sally has the best advantage of them all because of what happens that she gets to run from him. Yeah. But that's the terror of it. You know, you think everything's just sort of normal and you're carrying on and then all of a sudden, boom, there's horror right in front of you. Yeah, and I think that's a very important. I mean, we get slashers like that later on, too. I think there's that mix, right? You can have the chance where the final girl goes through and sees everything that's happening and gets to walk yes. through and sees all the bodies. Then you also have the case where sometimes you just don't know. And that's definitely right. it for Texas Chainsaw. And you don't know what's going to happen. And that's what makes Texas Chainsaw such a terrifying film. Because there's that scene at a later late when it's at night and Sally and Franklin are sitting there in the van. We, the audience, are saying to them, get in the van and drive away. But they don't know what's happened to their friends and they're not going to leave. Like Sally's, Sally, anyway, is not going to leave her friends behind. No, no. She won't do that. And you're saying, get in the van and drive away. <laughs> But you know that's not going to happen. And that's one of the things about this movie that just sits with you all the time. I've seen it 20 times. Every time I see it, I'd say to Sally, get in the van and drive away. I know she's not going to. <laughs> no. <laughs> but there's just that. That's that's the that's the, um, the that's what the movie does to you. you yeah. Know? But without that, we we don't get that last like. 20 minutes of what are, you know, some of the most memorable and iconic moments in horror yes, history, in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
All right, so that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Eating Alive. Yeah, sorry but... to derail you. Sorry no, no problem. You, no, I, I, that was great. I appreciate it. Thank you. And let's look at, um, now we're going to get to Salem's Lot, which was a television film from 1979. This is more Stephen King. Stephen King wrote Salem's Lot. All right. And this, the first, I've seen, you know, the first version of this I saw was on cable when I was younger. And it was the edited version for the, the theaters. It wasn't the TV version. And this movie just scarred the hell out of me. All right. But let's even look at it as the full TV version. You get like the first half of this movie is character development, building the town, building the citizens and whatnot. The second half of it, I think, is ranks right up there with Nosferatu as one of the single most frightening vampire films I've ever seen. And I'll be honest with you, I love Nosferatu. Salem's Lot scared me more. I agree. The The second half of this movie is just off the chain. And again, it's television. This is Toby Hooper dialed back. Mm-hmm. He couldn't do what he did in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Eaten Alive because he's doing it for television. He's dialing it back. But yet, even with dialing it back, he somehow manages to scare the hell out of you. There are just numerous scenes that a little kid scratching on the window outside, floating out there. The scene with uh, Jeffrey Lewis, where he's there with Lou Ayers, teacher. The one who, who gets up off the table with David Soul sitting there trying to suddenly consecrate these tongue depressors or whatever he had into a cross to... to Fight them off, fight her off. Everything about the second half of this movie is Toby Hooper and his vision and what he did with it. Stephen King wrote the story, but this was Toby Hooper's interpretation of it. You know, we got the building of it in the first part of it, and I think he did a good job with that. It's not boring. I don't, I know some people said, oh, you know. They love the second half, but, you know, they're not too big into the first half of this. This is like a three-hour miniseries is what it was. Maybe three-plus hours. Yeah, it was long. I liked those scenes where they were building it. But what you remember about this is the second half of Salem's Lot once those vampires are unleashed. And that, for me, was total Toby Hooper. Anything on on Salem's Lot? Yeah, I love Salem's Lot. And I... (laughs) You know, we get some, we do get some great um, character moments too. You're right, uh, early on in that. Fred um, Willard, who is that? I think Fred Willard, yeah. interesting character. So, <laughs> in that scene in his underwear, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, Put I'm the a gun big in fan your mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Salem's Lot, so you don't have to sell me on that one, Dave. All right. Okay, then we're going ahead to the early '80s with the Fun House. The Fun House. Um, is about, you know, these this group of friends, they go to a carnival. They decide to stay overnight. They want to sneak into the funhouse and sleep there overnight. But that's not a good idea because this is not what you would think is a normal carnival. There are certain individuals here, including one deformed individual who once once he finds out that these people are there because they witness something 
this these uh, this these two couples witness something while they're in this fun house and uh it pretty much spells their doom you know it's almost like when you think of green room when uh, those characters witness something and patrick stewart they're locked in a room they don't want to get out and patrick Stewart says look you're you know you're going to come out and you know this isn't going to end well for you that's the feeling you get in the fun house but this is again toby toby hooper just being visceral you know even the early scenes in this first off there's a scene at the beginning that sort of pays tribute to both both halloween and, and psycho mm-hmm it's a very strange scene with a brother and his sister, a younger brother and his older sister in the shower where he just sort of bursts in on her. Then later on, when they get to the carnival, you have a scene. There, there's a two-headed cow in this. A leg- <laughs> yeah. a, a, honest to goodness, two-headed cow appears in this film the moment from this that I remembered when I first saw it on cable, when in, in when it came on cable, I was probably 11 or 12 years old, was with this magician who invited a woman up on stage, put her in this coffin, and was going to nail a stake into her heart. And it's a trick. You know, it's it's part of part of his act. But when you first see that, you're like, holy God, what the, you know. This whole, but again, this is, this is Toby Hooper. He gives us, he combines the, the visceral with the WTF. Because the entire sequence there where that deformed individual is with this other carnival person and is paying her for sex. (laughs) You're like, what am I looking at here? What the hell is this? So that is sort of Toby Hooper just being Toby Hooper, I think. And 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 as Funhouse is one of those movies, I really love it. I, I I like it more every time I see it. And that's one, and I haven't seen this in a long time, Dave, but that's one that kind of takes and correct me if you're thinking wrong, but Hooper likes to look at the um the abnormal and like the kind of outcast yes. in life a little bit, right? And that, absolutely I think that comes through in the fun house. Absolutely. I agree with you. I think it comes through in, in spades in the fun house. Yep. All right. The next one is one that I think has never really, I don't think Toby Hooper has gotten the credit he deserves for this. It is 1982's Poltergeist. Now, Poltergeist, Steven Spielberg was the producer of this film. And there are people who have said that he was on set steering things. He was controlling things. Let's look at that. What did Spielberg contribute to this movie? He contributed the Freelings, that family. Mm-hmm. That is Spielberg. The fact that you love this family as much as you do, and they're a flawed family. But so was the family in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So was the family in E.T. Mm-hmm. They're not your normal American family that, you know, quote unquote, normal American family but you feel a connection to them. You fall in love with them. And that's what pulls you into the movie. Poltergeist is about caring about the Freeling family and wanting to see them get out of this horrible situation they're in. That is the Spielberg of Poltergeist. So what's the Toby Hooper? The Toby Hooper is the bodies popping out of the ground. 
the steak crawling across the counter and exploding into maggots, the guy pulling his face off in the mirror. That is Toby Hooper. And it was Justin Beam who pointed this out to me uh, when we were talking about this film. It is sort of a marriage of Spielberg and Toby Hooper. You get the wonder and the awe of Spielberg and you get the just what the F of Toby Hooper in this movie. I think it's a really good combination of the two of them. And I think that Spielberg had a lot to do with it, but I don't think Toby Hooper gets the credit he deserves for Poltergeist. No. And Dave, and I'm in agreement with you hundred percent. I can see both sides of this argument from a, for certain standpoint, because if you've seen anything about Toby Hooper, he just seems like a quiet, reserved guy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't stand up to probably Spielberg. You know, that no, you have Spielberg this figure, like, was, would definitely come on and he would say, we're doing this. We're doing this. We're doing yeah. this. We're doing Spielberg's this. not yeah. some guy to sit back and just right. let yeah. things play out. But it's the same time. Have you ever seen in any other Spielberg movie, some of this like gruesome and horrifying stuff that we see in Poltergeist? No, you kind of see it at the very end of Raiders of the Lost Ark with. Yes. With you know, the melting, yeah. <laughs> you do. But in this one, it's built more into the story. It's not the climax. This is yeah. the story, you know, yes. and you see that. And that's what that's what that's the Toby Hooper influence on this. He brought the the gruesomeness into poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Spielberg brought the family and the way he built that family. And for me, I I that's for me. The thing about Poltergeist, I saw this in the theater in 1982, and it just, you know, I, my friends and I went and saw it. It scared the hell out of us, but I also fell in love with it. And it's because the moment you, you're sitting there with that family, you fall in love with that family and everything that happens to them afterwards, you'll want to see them get out of it. That's Spielberg, but you get plenty of Toby Hooper in this as well. Those the the bodies and everything I mentioned, you it, it is a nice blend of the two of them. Yeah, I agree one hundred percent. All right, the last one I'm going to look at is one that Toby Hooper made for our good friends Golem and Globus at Canon Films, <laughs> and it is a little movie called Life Force. Life Force may be one of the most insane sci-fi horror films. Well, I'm not even just going to say of the 80s. I'm going to say of the 20th century. The things that happen in this film are beyond insane. I reviewed this on the blog. And just to give you an idea of what the movie is, this is my first paragraph. 1985 sci-fi horror mashup Life Force has two distinct personalities. Blended into the complex, near indecipherable tale of an apocalypse. One anchored in ancient mythos with a straight up exploitation flick filled to its breaking point with violence, nudity, and sexual deviancy. How else can one describe a film about a spaceship harboring the vampires of legend that also contains a scene in which Steve Railsback makes out with Patrick Stewart? <laughs> that is what you get with... And I know um, Hooper worked with Golem Globus. I think he made several films for them. Yeah, Invaders from Mars. Invaders from Mars was one, yes. Mm-hmm. So he worked with them on a few times. But you still get... That, you know, I want to say, and I've said it a few times already, talking about Toby Hooper. When we're talking about Toby Hooper as an auteur, 
The quality it is the WTF moments in his movies. And you get a lot of those in Life Force. A lot of <laughs> you them. You do. You certainly do. You know, at the end, when all was said and done, and I know it's a flawed film, but damn if I didn't love this. This is the first time I gave a quarter point rating when I was oh, really? doing a film. I gave this a 9.75 out of 10. <laughs> Because of how insane and how how much I loved it. Because for me, this is Toby Hooper doing what Toby Hooper did best. Yeah, and Life Force for me, Dave, is something that I actually visited for the first time this year. Oh, wow. And it's one where it has a lot of flaws, but I think there's such... It's almost a shame because I feel like Hooper never got, I think Poltergeist was his one chance to step into the, you know, the limelight and the big step into step into the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. But I think he could have done so much more with this and invaders from Mars, because I think there's a solid foundation for both. Mm -hmm. And I think there's really good stuff in there. And I think part of the problem is Goldman and Globus aren't going to give you the money. Exactly. That's the, yeah, that's (laughs) the thing. And he was so good at making these indie films, but I think, the films that he wanted to make, I don't think he had the money to realize the potential with those two in particular. Right. I, but, I agree with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. You. But what he did with what he had, I thought mm-hmm. was pretty impressive. Yes. I mean, that's pretty ambitious to do that kind of a level of a sci-fi special effects film. Yep. With the budget I'm sure he had for that. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, Golem and Globus, they, they screwed up Superman for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Superman for a quest for peace and bragged about it and bragged about it. Yes. Yes. And I'm not gonna, I don't want to crap on Golem and Globus because I think they did Canon films put out some fun stuff. Delta force. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Oh, Delta force. Yeah. You know, um, even some of those um, missing in action mm-hmm. films with Chuck Norris, you know, some of the Chuck Norris films. Did they do all me. those Chuck Norris films in the eighties? I don't know that. Well, I like think Lone did, Wolf McQuaid and that kind of stuff. I don't know that they did Lone Wolf McQuaid. Lone Wolf McQuaid, I'm not sure. They might okay. have. I know they did a lot of later Chuck Norris films. They did pretty much all the missing in action films, if I'm okay. not mistaken. You know, I okay. think they did all of those. Um, and of course, they did a lot of the Jean Claude Van Damme films. <laughs> Jean Claude Van Damme's first appearance in, in a film was in the was it Breakdance? Is that the name of the movie? The sequel was Electric Boogaloo. Oh, Breaking. Breaking. That's what it was. Yeah. That was uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme's. He kept hanging around the studio, bugging them to put him in a movie. So if you watch, there's a scene where you got all these people together and they're just sort of dancing. There's Jean-Claude Van Damme in the background acting like a total ass, jumping all over the place. (laughs) But your eyes are drawn to him. That was like him. That was like his start. And from there, he built a pretty decent career. He made, you know, some of the Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. I like Tom. I like Tom Cop. I think Tom mm-hmm. Cop's a fun movie. Yeah. You know, he made some good movies. Um, but I think most of them were canon films as well. And if you want to see a really good documentary, you got to see Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, made by Mark Hartley, who did... Um, not quite Hollywood, the wild untold story of exploitation. 
Okay, and that's the one that went over your uh, your boy Brian Trenchard Smith in there, right? Yeah, Brian Trenchard Smith is mentioned in in that one quite a bit, and a lot of other films are mentioned in in uh, Not Quite Hollywood. Uh, but um, definitely check out Electric Boogaloo, uh, not uh, the wild untold story of Canon Films, because it's just as much fun okay. as Not Quite Hollywood. Yeah, I definitely will. I love a good documentary. Oh, and this, the, both of them, watch them as a one-two, and it's it's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put those both on the list. So anyway, that's just what, just to wind up, uh, for, for me, Toby Hooper, that's what makes him a, an auteur, is that it's, it's those WTF moments, you know, that he seems to excel in, in all of those movies that I mentioned. In all of those movies, there's at least one or two scenes where you're going, what am I looking at here? What the hell? Holy cow. Like, it's something you weren't expecting. Absolutely. Hooper's such an interesting director. Yeah. And and I didn't I, like a lot of his later films. Uh, yeah. I, I thought, you know, and the same with Romero, unfortunately. You know, when they got a little bit later, they they sort of fell off the rails a little bit. Well, you know how it is today. I mean, if he would have done Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1999, he'd probably be doing like, you know, I don't even want to think about what he'd be doing. Like, a, I, yes, exactly. a cult of Chucky type. Right. Exactly, <laughs> he'd be doing a child's yeah. play story or something. I mean, that's the thing, how it is today. I feel like you have one breakout in the hit and now you're in control of a major franchise or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a shame. Right. And then, so it, it's better that he worked when he did. And I, yeah, and I think that it's good because a lot of the times people can't handle a budget. And I think even though I would have liked to see some more budget behind Hooper and I would have liked to see him gain more traction, which that would have been nice. I think what we got was decidedly Toby Hooper's movies. I think we got what Toby Hooper wanted to make. I I think we, I think he did what he needed to do and uh, what he was going to do, you know, and we got to see it in a lot of different types of films, which, you know, your Texas Chainsaw Massacre, people look at it as a slasher. I don't necessarily know that I think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a slasher, um, mm-hmm. but I don't know that it's not either. You know, it's kind of one of those ones that's sort of hard to pinpoint, mm-hmm. you know, yep. what it is. Um, Eaten Alive, you can look at it as a creature feature. Yes. With that damn alligator or crocodile, whatever it is out in the water. Um, Salem's Lot is a vampire film. You know, no doubt about it. The Fun House. That's another one that's a little bit hard to categorize. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Poltergeist is supernatural. Yep. No doubt about it. Life Force is sci-fi horror. Yep. All of these are different genres, yet all of them bear the unmistakable mark of Toby Hooper. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Dave. And that's why I was excited to hear you talk about this one, because maybe not what you think of when you first pick out like your first 10 horror tours, but right. No, right. And I can understand that because, you know, uh, but, but for me, I, I think it, I think it's, you know, well, I've made my case. (laughs) Yes, you absolutely have. (laughs) Yep. Great job, Dave, on that one. So my next one, you're in the dark on this one, Dave. I I am. You mentioned three you might do. So I'm anxious to hear who you're going to go with. So my three were, um, I was down to Argento, um, Cronenberg and Raimi. Right. And my thing is, is I think that Argento, we both just did Giallo episodes. Right. Uh, so I was ready. I was like, let's, let's talk about something different than Argento. 
And when I think of Raimi, his horror, even though he puts his elements in, into his films of his non-horror stuff, not a long, extensive list of horror movies. So I went with the our friend from the uh, Great White North, and I went with David Cronenberg. Wow, that's awesome. That's a gr- that's a great choice. Great. Yeah, choice. thank yep. you. I, any it, one of the three, I would have said that though, to be honest with you, because I like yeah. all three of them. But Cronenberg <laughs> is a great choice because I think you know the, he, you can definitely make a case for him as an auteur. Just just let's start with body horror. Exactly. Yeah, that's the first place. That's easy, right? That's like the Romero zombie. You've got right, Romero exactly. is the zombies, yes. as is, you know, Cronenberg pretty much revolutionized body horror. Yep. But that's not all that he's getting into in his films, right? You have taking a look at sexual themes and you have taking a look at kind of same with Hooper kind of things outside of the norm or fetish, fetish type stuff almost. Right. Yep. If we want to talk about his big three that he started with, and I know you're feeling on which one of these three you like the best, Dave, but I think all three are really good films. And you've got Shivers, which Mm -hmm. is exploring this type of it's a metaphor for kind of like the, you know, the sexual revolution and sexual liberation and things like that. And letting go. And I think it's a very unnerving film without necessarily having the, you know, horror touchstones that we see in a lot of other films. And then he follows that up with rabid, which is almost like a, you know, a take on like STDs. So almost the, the fallout from shivers results in rabid. (laughs) Exactly. And, And a movie that proved that Marilyn chambers could do more than just pornography. Exactly. And, I'll spoil it here. Rabbit has always been my favorite of the three. Okay. I like all three. I know you're a brood man yourself. I, you know what I am. I, when I think David Cronenberg, I got to admit, I think the brood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that one's, that one's a weird one too, because that's almost like touching on some very relevant issues today. And what happens when, I mean, what you have going on in that retreat with our main character there. And, not to get off topic a little bit, but those little those little creatures that are running around the brood, those things have always freaked me out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Me, too. You know, and, and plus that 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 image of of who was the actress, Samantha? Was it Samantha Egger? Samantha Egger. That's what I was yeah. trying to think of earlier. I was trying to stall. Yeah, <laughs> she, she started. Yeah. The, the image of her, just what she, you know, with with that core. Oh, my God. It, it, there's something about this movie that just stays with me. And it was a very personal film for Cronenberg because I think he was going through a divorce at the time. Yeah. A very yeah, messy I, divorce. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that was the, you know, the impetus for that film. But yeah, I think it's all three related with fallout from sexual encounters. No, you've right. got the shivers, yeah. the free love type thing. You've got the STD theme and rabbit, and then you've got, you know, motherhood. And what does it mean to be a parent and have your body out of your control at points as well with the brood? And right. I think those go together very well with what we would see as like his themes running through his films. I agree. That's awesome. 
And and then we get into where he's having it seems like a little bit more fun, because I don't know if I'd call those first three fun films at all. I don't know. No, no I don't <laughs> think so. No, no one's going to look at them. No, one, no one's going to be. They're not popcorn films. <laughs> no, no. And I don't think I don't think Cronenberg, I think the closest he would ever get to mainstream type stuff would be The Fly and yes. The Dead Zone. And if you look at those, I mean. Those aren't necessarily something you're going to take your family to see on the, no. a Saturday and, matinee or something. And one of the things I love about The Fly, it was it was produced by Mel Brooks. Oh, yes, yes. Mel and he Brooks didn't want his name to... on it because he didn't want people to think it was a he comedy. Didn't want, yeah, he didn't want people to think it was going to be a comedy. The same thing with The Elephant Man. Mel Brooks produced The Elephant Man as well. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want yep. people to think that that was going to be a Mel Brooks type film. But we get, I think we get into here with this pseudoscience and his his kind of emphasis on that and like the technology of the time, the cutting edge technology, because you get scanners, mm-hmm. which is dealing with, I, I guess you could say it's a little outside of reality, but it's kind of like a pseudoscience type topic, right? Oh yeah, definitely. And then you get video drone where he's talking about, you know, the new thing we're looking at these, he's watching these films and getting pulled into a TV and all this stuff. And I Ooh. love, I love that. That's a pretty, pretty dire film too. But. Yes, it is. No doubt. Yeah, but then, you know, we get into the fly and we're talking about full on sci fi, you know, cutting edge technology that doesn't exist yet. And he's he, he kind takes, of he takes the fly. I mean, if you look at the two versions of the fly, the one from the 50s with that, you know, the, the sort of where Vincent Price was a co-star, you know, people look at that as a Vincent Price. But Vincent Price was not in that movie all that much. And you look at the new fly, the original fly didn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. No, no. With what happened to the guy that, you know, he was in the, was, he was there and, and he got merged with a fly and part of him was a fly and then this other fly was flying around with human parts. It didn't make a lot of sense. What Cronenberg did was merge the two. That when they came out on the other end, their DNA had merged, you know, which made better sense. And where he went with that was in some very disturbing direct. Oh my God. Some of the scenes in that movie and Jeff Goldblum was brilliant. It might be Jeff Goldblum's best performance. And that's saying something. It's what almost made Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum with like his persona and his yeah. little ticks and everything. Right. And the th- yeah, the fly is so grotesque. That's the other thing is it's almost like, um, to HR Geiger levels of grotesqueness out of his films. Right. Very different things. I think. Uh, well, in some aspects, I guess you do have some of that, but I really think in the fly, it's just like there are some pretty there are some scenes that make you kind of queasy, depending on when you're watching oh, them. Right. Yeah, Dave? absolutely. This the scene where he does regurgitates. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> in, even in video dream where he's pulling, you know, the gun out of his stomach is pretty, yeah. pretty grotesque. Yep, absolutely. And then sticking on that that science theme, you have something like existence in the late nineties, which is dealing with, you know, video gaming and virtual reality gaming, which he was very much ahead of the time on that is that's become something that's been popular in the last few years. I, I, you know, I really like that movie. As a matter of fact, I'm looking it up now. Exist existence. Yes. For my, for my blog, for my 2500 movie challenge, it was number two. It was of the nine, second was movie I reviewed on the blog. Oh, number two that you reviewed. Okay. Number two that I reviewed on the blog. After Armageddon? 
after Armageddon, yes. <laughs> and I reviewed Armageddon because of my son. I decided to start this challenge. I woke up and my son said, can we watch Armageddon? <laughs> I guess there could have been worse things, right? Yeah. So let's put it this way. Existence was the first movie I chose to watch mm-hmm. for, yep. for the 2500 movie challenge. It was the second one. And I'm with you. There's th- There are moments in that movie and it's it's the whole idea of just like plugging into yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then we've had, and I'll admit these are two films I have not seen, Dave. And um, they're Dead Ringers, which deals with kind of a, a twin situation, right? Yep. Yep. And how those relate to each other. And then you've got Crash, which absolutely dives full into that outside the norm sexual behavior. Right? I saw Crash once, and yeah, it is intense. Wow. That is an intense film. I haven't seen it in a while. But it is an intense movie. Yeah, and everything I've heard from it, that's kind of what I, I've heard. You know, I've I've went and um, I've heard of the key scenes in that movie. And, oh, I don't know if I could make it through. I might be able to one day. <laughs> but, yeah, um, Dead Ringers, though, is one I definitely want to see with um, Jeremy Irons. Yep. But and then he kind of falls out of horror for a while. Right. Yeah. And but he does stuff like I I'm a huge fan of Eastern Promises and um, Big Morton's good and History of Violence. History dude, of Violence. I, yep. That's another really strong one. I saw both of those in the theater, and I'm a big fan of those as well. Yeah, and Raul, if you um, have not seen Eastern Promises, we do get some naked Vigo Mortensen in there. So that's for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, moving on, and he just came back, um, as far as I'm aware of, Dave, unless you know of anything else, to the horror genre in a big way with Crimes of the Future, which I think, have you seen that one yet, Dave, from this I year? I haven't, no, but I have okay. it on my list to see. I think you could argue whether that's horror or not. It probably falls more in that, you know, sci-fi. Some people say it's, I've seen some people say it's not, but I've seen it categorized as horror as well, so. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird movie. It definitely takes on the body whore. It's kind of like Argento coming back with dark glasses, which carries on his Giallo films, right? This comes back and it's right where he left off with the body horror. And I think the body horror is pretty good. And Mortensen is good. And the cast is really good in it. I think my main problem with crimes of the future is it gets a little bogged down. The story's not quite as coherent as I'd like it to be at times, Okay, but it's a good solid film. It's definitely worth watching. I think both, the funny thing is I compare it, but I think dark glasses and crimes of the future are very similar in my rating that I gave them. So two directors that came back from long absences. And I think they did a very good job and it's almost cool to see what he passed on to his son who is just starting his career in that sci-fi horror category. Right. And kind of carrying on his father's legacy in his own way. But what was the I, one he, he did that? I, Possessor. Man, I love. Possessor. I love yeah. that movie. Yeah, that's a good one. And then he did, I think, antiviral as well, I believe, or something like mm-hmm. that. It's something like that. OK. I haven't seen that one yet, but I do want to. I haven't. That. I haven't either. I'll be honest. I haven't seen that one either. Yeah. But getting back to David, I just think very clearly you can see what he did with body horror and the grotesque and the outside of the norm as far as like what you're into sexually or what you're getting into with i mean you could argue that um james woods is getting into some sexual territory and videodrome too right oh Uh, big at least chasing a fetish yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) so that's what i've got on cronenberg nice Uh, he's it's a great one it's 
and you, you, he definitely is. He definitely is an auteur. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think he was approached. It's very interesting. He was approached to direct. I want to say return of the Jedi. Oh, really? Can you imagine what a David Cronenberg <laughs> Return of the Jedi might have been like? Oh, where they'd be pulling lightsabers out of. I would have loved to have seen the Ewoks in the world of existence. <laughs> yeah, because you'd like to see them getting mowed down when you do. It, well, no, I, I just want to see things getting plugged in. <laughs> well, it would be very interesting seeing his take on that Jabba's palace scene, too, if that remained the oh, same, yeah, right? absolutely. Like yeah. what he could do in that realm. Right. Yep. Yeah, that would have been pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, I think we um, I mean, I think those were all good choices for strong. I mean, maybe a little bias here because I, I had a part in this, too. But I think those are all strong choices for horror auteurs. Yeah, and I, and there's a lot that we that we didn't touch on that. Yeah. I, do you have time? Do you want to go into a few yeah, just sure. honorable mentions, just high level what you think? Absolutely. Um. Well, you know, definitely John Carpenter. Yeah. I think you can make a case for John Carpenter. Absolutely. When you're looking at some of the, let's look at some of the newer directors, Jordan Peele, Ari Aster. You can definitely make a case, at least with the films they've done so far, that they are auteurs, that they have brought their unique vision. Definitely Jordan Peele. Definitely Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. When you look at his films, they have a distinct, they have a distinctness, a distinctiveness to them, a, a pacing, an idea to them, a, a, a vision to them that I think is very strong. What are your thoughts, Dave, on two directors that I know that you're a big fan of with um, Lucio Fulci and Rob Zombie? Mm. Oh, well, Zombie, I think definitely. I think you can tell a Rob Zombie film. First off, it's going to have Sherry Moon Zombie in it. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that Sherry Moon Zombie has appeared in any other movie other than a Rob Zombie movie. So no. if you see Sherry Moon Zombie, it's a Rob Zombie film. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know what? Rob Zombie definitely has a, a feel to his movies, starting with House of a Thousand Corpses to The Devil's Rejects to the Halloween films. They they have a certain personality to them. Mm-hmm. Even something, even a movie I didn't really care for, 31. You know it's a Rob Zombie film when you're watching it. Then he finally steps away with the monsters. It's so funny because people, when they found out that Rob Zombie was doing the monsters, they're like, oh my God, he's going to turn them into white trash, cursing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that he's going to do that. Then he doesn't do that. And people are like, what the hell is this? What's this crap he's given us? He's ruined the monsters. What the, you know, Rob Zombie is one of those filmmakers who can't win. No, can't, he can't win no matter what he does. No, people no, are going to can't. attack him no matter what he does. And, 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 and that's just the way it is. And, and don't attack him for putting Sherry Moon Zombie in his movies, you know, because he, that's happened throughout time. Where Argento. Directors... We just talked about Argento. The same Argento, thing with his, yeah. with Nickelodeon, Daria Nickelodeon. Yes, and then his absolutely. daughter as well. <laughs> yes. He put, he put Asia Argento in them as well. Absolutely. Joseph von Sternberg made a ton of movies with Marlena Dietrich. It's nothing new in, in cinema, ladies and gentlemen, to use an actress over and over. And you know what? Rob Zombie, it's his wife. 
and he mm-hmm. loves her and he's going to put her in the movie. Yep. And to be honest with you, I don't think she's terrible. No, I don't think so. And this is, I wanted to bring this one up, Dave, because I know you're a big Rob Zombie fan. Now, I don't necessarily like his films as much as you and um, mm-hmm. like Greg and Pearl and stuff do. But I think I think he's absolutely an auteur. And, I, you know, I like Rob Zombie um, as a person, like the weird horror movies that he likes. His shows are amazing in person. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I have I'm a fan of Rob Zombie in general, even if even I don't like his films yeah. as much as. Yeah. And even something like Lords of Salem. Has Which I love. That, That's my favorite. Yeah, is. And it has that Rob Zombie stamp on it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell it is a Rob Zombie film. Yep. Uh, what what were your thoughts on Fulci? Oh, sorry. Before we. Yeah, no, no. Fulci, Fulci is, you know, he was. I think you can make a case for him. Absolutely. I mean, how many movies is uh, let's look at some of the characteristics. How many films where you have somebody's eye being gouged or pierced? You know, uh, he is into like sort of the extreme violence. He's into um, he did those. Well, he did the what was it? The Gates of Hell trilogy. Yep. You know, uh, the Living Dead, The Beyond and The House by the Cemetery. So, yeah, I think you could definitely make a case for Fulci. Again, he sometimes worked outside of that. He made a few Westerns. He made a few, you know, other he made things. some action for some sci-fi fantasy. He films did. Too. He did conquest, which, yep. you know, the problem with conquest is it looks like they're filming in a fog the whole damn time. <laughs> I was, it's funny. I was just talking to Ian Erz about this very subject of like the non Fulci horror or non horror mm-hmm. Fulci movies. So yeah, I, those, these are just ones I'm spitballing Dave. Cause I was thinking about that and you know, Italian film in general very much is like, let's move on to the next big thing, drain it dry and then move on to the next genre. Like we're going to move from West. (laughs) We're going to move from Westerns to Giallo's to cannibal films, to the supernatural zombie films, to whatever. But working within that, working within that Fulci still managed to distinguish himself. I think so too. I think the big ones definitely made a name for themselves. Right. And he's not, yeah, right. He's not the only one. Argento as well. Mm -hmm. Argento, Mario Bava, you got a number of them who you could look at as auteurs, that it was their vision. And even to the point, like, what was it? It was Zombie 3, I think, where <laughs> Fulci was directing that one. And he delivered the movie, and the producer was like, wait a second, this is like 50 minutes. It's not even a full movie. <laughs> and Fulci's like, too late, I'm done, I'm moving on to the next thing. Uh, so I think they had to bring, bring in Bruno Matai to finish <laughs> Zombie 3 what? because Fulci was done with it. Well, that's the interesting thing with those Italian films, too, because you get into like demons and then there's like seven demons films. There's like three demons threes, Dave. Wow. <laughs> and it's like films like The Church. Uh, they were calling demons for anyone who had anything to do with demons. That was uh, Michele Suave. Anyone right. who had anything to do with the original demons and made another film. They were like, oh, yes, that's definitely a demon film. Like, I think <laughs> I think Lamberto Bava made one called The Ogre. And they're like, yes, that's demons three. And then. And that- that's the thing they they did that they did that with the zombie films. Yeah, they did, what was it? Zombie. Was zombie, it zombie was um day was Dawn of the Dead. The Argento Dawn of the Dead was it, like yes. the first one. Then you had the Zombie Two, which was Zombie from seventy nine, yep. which I think is awesome. I love Zombie. Uh, then Zombie Three, uh, Zombie Four. I don't remember a lot about that, uh, but Zombie Five wasn't that the Birds one? Which oh, it might have been. Yeah, it had nothing to do with. Anything in the universe of 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 Fulci's zombie films, nothing to do no. with it at all. 
And Dave, how about this one? I was talking about demons, but what if you compare demons to what they call sometimes in the series demons 1994, which was Cemetery Man? Um, really? And put Cemetery Man and demon. It's just because I think it's just because Suave had a role in making that film. Right. But, how are those two films related at all? <laughs> I don't see it at all. Demons and, and I love them both. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Ooh, too. I love both of those movies. I really love Cemetery Man. That is such a good film. Um, but no, how there's no way you could attach that to demons. I mean, that's like a zombie film. Exactly. It's <laughs> not demons. It's a freaking zombie film. You have a seven head talking for God's sake. Yep. I, th- I think that's the Italian stuff, Dave. I think they like yeah. to, a lot of the times if you're watching a sequel, it's not going to have anything to do with the one before it. Right. No, understood. And that's why, you know, you look at all the spaghetti Westerns and you you, you get titles, you know, like that, you know, the, the, well, you had Django mm-hmm. in a lot. Of oh, them yeah. Because the first Django with Franco Nero was big. So all of a sudden it was like, you know, Django shoot if you live, kill, yep. or you know, so, things like that. You know, yep, you've got Sartano um, in there later with all the Sartano films. Sartano but... films, yeah. I know Arrow put out a really good set of, of all those movies. It just, you know, it was out there, it was out yep. there. And then when it got to for titles, I was thinking that's more the Jallos. And you talked about that in your Jallo episodes where the titles were just like, what the hell? Don't torture a duckling. What, what is that? Who's torturing ducklings? <laughs> you know, who would, who would, who would torture a duckling? You know? Yeah, I know. Your vice is a locked room and only I have the key. Only I have the key. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like, they just kept trying to get better and better. And by the way, that's probably one of my favorites. Your vice oh, really? is a locked room and only I have the key. I think that's, I, I love Martino's shallows. Yeah, I do too. I really I gravitate do. toward those. Oh, sorry, Dave. I got us on a dance. I got no, us on a no problem. It was, hey, it was bound to happen. <laughs> yep. I had a couple more here, and then we can go yep. bounce back to you too. I think Joe Dante is one. Yeah. Maybe he didn't stay in horror his whole career, but I think he's done enough. Where you get, I think, when you see a Joe Dante movie, I think you know what you're getting. Yep. Um, Starting with Piranha, and, and you know, going yep. forward to The Howling. Yeah, absolutely. And then I had a question for you. I don't know how many films of his you've seen, but um, Abel Ferrara. Oh, yes. I'm thinking specifically like something. I They are not similar in tone or anything like that, but I think there's a feeling with uh, The Driller Killer and Miss 45, is, at least. Now, oh, I don't know definitely. if you get to something like Body Snatchers and if that really there's feels a grittiness like... <laughs> Body Snatchers, he did a really good version of Body Snatchers. I think he did, too. I really like his version of Body Snatchers. But yeah, I think when you get, there's a grittiness to the Driller Killer and Miss 45. That's unmistakable. And a really underrated Abel Fryer movie is for me, 1990s King of New York. I really enjoy that film with, with Christopher Walken. And um, I know it's got, uh, uh, oh God, Lawrence Fishburne's in there as well. It's a good movie. I think, I think you could definitely make a case for Abel Ferrara. As, as an auteur, even though he's working across sometimes other genres or other ideas of films, I think he brings enough to it. Where, where you, where it's like under, unmistakable, like it's an Aberfrog oh, yeah. film. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So I'm glad you chimed in on that because I wasn't sure on that one, but I just had this feeling like that. I just feel from those films that they're related and oh, they've yeah. got something to go with them. But definitely. Um, what else do you have? Who else did you want to mention if you had any more? Piece from for as far as the horror genre, uh, 
I'm trying to think now. I'm going back a bit. Uh, well, you could look at Wes Craven in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he worked across different um, types of films. But it's funny because all of Wes Craven's movies became like, like you look at them now and they're more than maybe they were even at the time. Last House on the Left was remade. The Hills Have Eyes. There's a brutality to at least the very early Wes Craven films. Then he got into, you know, you look at him, he, he, he's the one he created, Freddy Krueger. He's the one who brought Scream to the big screen. You know, so I think you could definitely make a case for, uh, for Wes Craven as, as well. You know, uh, then some of his other films, some of the ones that are sort of on the periphery, that were not the 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 franchise movies or the you know the very early sort of gritty ones. He did the Serpent and the Rainbow. Oh yes, great. Which is a yeah, I like that one quite a bit. He did what is one of Gilman Joel's all time favorite films, The People Under the Stairs. Yep, that's a good one. Yep, and Deadly Blessing. I think I've grown to appreciate more than I did initially when I first saw it. I don't remember that one. I've seen it, but it's been a long time. That's but... that's the one with Ernest Borgnine sort of okay. leading. It's almost like, I, I want to say like an Amish community. I don't think they call them the Amish, but it's almost what it feels like. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 But unfortunately, like we talked about with Romero there at the end of his career, he gave us something like my soul to take. Yeah. Which I still I, will I, never forgive. Like I rented that movie. Dave, it's that it's was... such a shame. Look, and I look at, you get that with a lot of like, I, I, I love Mel Brooks movies. You watch the producers, you watch blazing saddles, young Frankenstein, even the 12 chairs. These are movies that are still funny today. Mm-hmm. How did the man who'd made those also do life stinks and Dracula dead and loving it? Yeah. Yeah. At Which some point, yeah. just are not funny. No. Yeah. I don't know. The bad thing is, is I have this negative opinion of my soul to take because there are some movies that I love and I can't remember certain scenes in. And mm-hmm. this one somehow always pops up into my head and I have like certain scenes in this that I'm like, what was that movie? And I'm like, why are you in my brain? My soul to take, wow. like, get out of there. <laughs> take a hike. He's like, get something else in there. But no, I, yeah, I think that's a good point is I, there's just a point where directors fall off, whether they lose interest or they run right. out of ideas or even the great I, ones. So with Craven, it's sort of, it's a, it's, it's sort of a, a weak thread because not all of his movies bear his unmistakable mark. Right. You know, they're good movies. But can you look at the original Hills Have Eyes and then watch later on, you're saying my soul to take and say, oh, yeah, the same director made both of these movies. Yeah, it's hard. I don't know that you can do that. I don't even know that you can do that from Nightmare on Elm Street to Scream. I don't know. You could look at those two movies and say the same director made both those movies. No, but you know, there's a link there with um, new nightmare and scream. Cause I think those are yeah. very similar. The, 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 yeah. That's sort of, that's sort of meta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you get, you get that. So there, there is that similarity there. Um, but, but if you look at the first nightmare on Elm street and compared to scream, no, you, know, you, no. you don't quite get there. You don't <laughs> no. get there. Uh, is there anyone else you wanted to mention Dave? For no, I, I, I think that's it. I think we okay. uh, covered it. Yep, we we talked about a lot of good um, directors here and a lot of interesting directors. 
I think there's so many more. I mean, we could probably be here all night um, thinking up new ones, but right. (laughs) That's what I had. But uh, Dave, do you want to go ahead and give your plugs for where else everyone can find you? Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, DVDinfatuation.com, my blog. I'm still posting reviews over there. Um, I'm on Twitter at DVDinfatuation. I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, Instagram. I'm on Letterboxd. I have my YouTube channel that is still hanging out there. I haven't done anything with it for a while, but it's hanging out there. Uh, As far as other podcasts, we have my DVD Infatuation podcast, which is hosted over on Jay's Considering the Cinema and uh newest one coming out hopefully someday soon maybe by the time this comes out was with uh, ian urza where we're looking at giallos which you yourself sir just did a great job looking at oh, the uh, giallo films i really enjoyed both of those ep- well it was two episodes right yep no, two episodes. episodes no, no it was, was just two. two yep yep just the two and i enjoyed them both i thought they were both great other podcasts of course land of the creeps mm-hmm. with with the great greg uh greg amortis and the great bill van vagel uh, the Butcher Bill and the Great Pearl Morgan, who joins us from time to time. It's so much fun. Uh, I look forward to recording with them every two weeks. And uh, you were on a recent episode where we looked at our favorite movies that other people might not quite, you know, bad movies, our favorite bad movies. In a way. <laughs> yeah, just say it, Dave. <laughs> yeah, our favorite bad movies. Yep. You know, uh, you had come with... Um, Oh God! What was what was Darkness yours? Falls? Darkness Falls, yeah, which I like. Yep. I thought Darkness Falls was pretty good. Mm-hmm. I brought Curse of the Swamp Creature, which is just sort of a, a you know something you'd want to leave in the swamp. <laughs> um, but it was a fun episode. You know, it that was, was a lot fun. Of fun. Yeah, yeah. I, Even if I, the I movies weren't all the time, it was a fun episode. Exactly. Yeah, it was. It was great to sort of just sit there and talk about those films. And. Horror Movie Podcast is actually coming back. Um, uh, oh, really? Wolfman and I just recorded our review of Halloween Ends. Oh, um, no. <laughs> a lot of people are familiar with my review, but it hang in there because Wolfman has some thoughts on it as well. Oh, cool. You know? yeah, and the, But we don't just look at that. Uh, we also look at what is, you know, which timeline, which uh, of the Halloween timelines is our favorite. That's going to be a good episode. It's um, yeah, it's, it was a lot of fun recording it. We finally got back together. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, a, a couple over on. Um, oh, I also was a recent guest on. I want to just mention this. I was a recent guest on um, Headlong into Monsters mm-hmm. with Raul and Ashley, where we looked at the last four uh, Puppet Master films. Oh, wow, Dave. Oh, Tell me about it. <laughs> but I will say one of them in there, I'm a big fan of. One of the four okay. that we looked at. Okay. okay. Leprechaun um, wasn't enough for you when you did that? You had to go to the, the No, yeah, master. I had to do it again. Yes, I had to do it again. Um, oh, sorry, continue. Um, no. <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, let's look at uh, Phantom Galaxy. I have a couple over there. I have the Illustrated Fan. Where we are going to be doing a new one. We haven't done one for a while, but we're going to be in, we're looking at animated films. Mm-hmm. And Karen Wagner is going to join us for that episode. And of course, Phantom Video with uh, Nathan Bonneball, myself, and yourself, sir. Yeah, that's a fun one to record whenever we get it to It really that. is. We, we just did a, a really fun one where we looked at the all of the releases for December. And we sort of uh, 
you know, zoom, uh, honed in on a couple others, you know, uh, at, at the end, but that was a lot of fun. And, uh, that is right now. Is that still on Phantom Galaxy? He, I don't think Nathan's broken that out yet. Yeah. He hasn't broken it out okay. yet, but that, I think that should be coming out soon. That episode. I would think so. Yeah. That one should be out soon as well. Uh, but that was a lot of fun to record as well. And of course, Jay of the Dead's new horror movies, um, where Jay put out a whole bunch of stuff in October, which was, which was a blast. It's always fun to record with all those guys. Sometimes it's just three of us on the line. Sometimes it's seven of us on the line. It's so much fun. Uh, and Jay just does such an amazing job of putting those shows together. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an honor to be part of that show. And, uh, Definitely check out Jay of the Dead's new horror movie podcast if you have not. Yep, and continues to put out stuff in November, right? Oh yeah, oh it's still coming, yeah. Because uh, and um, and we're going to be recording again tomorrow. We have more stuff to record tomorrow. Jay just keeps building it up and building it up. So he's, I think, I think he wants to break the ten hour mark at some point. I <sighs> really do. I think he wants he's to break there. that ten hour mark. Yep. What was the last one? Like nine hours and something. Well, he just put out a new um, Dead Man Walking with uh, with uh, uh, Doctor Walking Dead Kyle Bishop, but the one prior to that, yes, is like is like nine hours plus or something. So it's one of those things where you're not going to be able to hear it all at once. You're going to have to sort of break it up a little bit. I can't sit there for ten hours and listen to a podcast. Um, and uh, and just thank you for having me on. It was it's great. This is my my third appearance, and it's. Uh, I have a blast every time. So thank you for having me on, sir. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate you being on and um, getting this topic. It's been a while uh, since we tried to get this together, but that, yeah. that's just how it happens sometimes. But, right. That's, that's life. You know? Yeah. But I really appreciate you coming on and talking here. All right, Dave. Well, it's been an honor having you on here again. As far as my plugs, you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can go over to Facebook. And join the Facebook group there as well as Facebook groups for, you know, Dave's other podcasts as well. There's some out there. Yeah. Land of the Creeps is such a fun uh, Facebook page. Oh, it is. And it's probably the most active that I am aware of. Yes, I agree with you. You can send an email over at screaming through the ages at yahoo.com. You can call in if you want to at 740-297-6556. You can find the podcast basically wherever you get your podcast at or over on the website of screaming through the ages.com and i think that's about it so with that being said keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson 